right, hello everyone. My name is Angela Howard and I am the CEO of Call for Culture and the host of Social Responsibility at Work. Really excited to be with you all today. And I am here with a very special guest, uh, Mita Malik, who is joining us to, first and foremost, we're going to have a chat about her, her new and upcoming book, Reimagine Inclusion. But also I want to mention that uh, Mita is a what I'd like to call multi-hyphenated wonder because there are, there's like this list of things that I started writing down, author, you know, published in Entrepreneur Magazine, like all these things. Um, so I'm going to let you do your own introduction and tell us a little bit more about your story and the impact you're looking to make on the world. Thank you for having me. That's a lot of pressure. Let's do a killer <laughs> introduction. What can I share about myself? Well, my superpower and my passion is storytelling. I currently am the head of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Carta. I am also a business executive and most importantly, a mom to Priya, who turned eight recently, going on 18, and Jay, who's 10, going on 20. So that's a little bit of a glimpse of my life. <laughs> and I do this work for them. I do this work for all of our children. I grew up in a time and a place where it was not cool to be Indian. I was the funny looking dark skinned girl with the long, funny looking braid whose parents spoke funny English until it wasn't funny anymore. I was the proud daughter of, I am the proud daughter of Indian immigrant parents. And for most of my life, I just felt like I didn't belong in my community and the greater world. And that feeling has really stayed with me. You know, Angela, I always joke, not joke, saying that I didn't realize that the bullies from the schoolyards and the classrooms would follow me into corporate America. Mm -hmm. And so I think I've been as I talk about and reimagine inclusion, I've been chasing inclusion all my life. I've been really chasing it all my life. Oh, well, I mean, first of all, what a um, great story about how, how you got here and, and why you're doing this work. Uh, so really inspired by the work that you're doing. And also I, I think the the edge that you have with your message is, is all around action and change. So mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of people doing DE&I work and I continue to think about how do we really unpack these ideas so mm -hmm. that we can ensure that the bullies don't exist in the workplace and that exclusion is not a part of the, the cultural fabric within an organization. So just thank you for, for putting in the work and doing it with passion and, and having that, that why anchored to it. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you. So tell us a little bit more about the book. Uh, and I also would love to just unpack the the different myths and the storytelling sure. that you that you build into the book so so my mother reminded me that i've been wanting to be an author ever since i could hold a pen i want to share this part of the story it's important because some of you might listening might think that i'm an overnight success i'm not i was the editor of my fifth grade <laughs> newspaper i wrote a screenplay in high school that was based on my version of the big fat Indian wedding. Hmm. I left undergrad and wrote three novels and had an agent. None of them got published. My agent dumped me. I then went to graduate school because I thought, well, I can't make money off of writing. So let me get an MBA. While in graduate school and right after that, I finished a fourth novel, still couldn't find an agent. And so then I ended up going into this track into marketing and brand management. And I buried the dream. And you know what happens when you bury a seed. Hmm actually starts to flourish over time. And I found my way back to writing. I wrote this book four years ago. So people listening are like, wow, I really wanted to be an author, but this is not 
this has taken practice, time, commitment, discipline. I didn't give up. So I wrote this book four years ago. And I thought to myself, like you said, there are a lot of people I know doing great DEI work. And there's a lot of good books out there. But for me, Angela, I thought to myself, we're not saying the quiet parts out loud. Mm. So I wrote this book, Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace. Why 13? Because it's my lucky number. I picked 13. There's more than 13. But I thought to myself, what are the most common things, the stories, the myths we hold on to that we believe are true and hold us back from doing work in our organizations that's meaningful? And so that's my story with the book. I will tell you also with the book, I had so many rejections. I had people who said to me, come back to me when you have a book more like Sheryl Sandberg. There are a lot of people like Mita writing books like this. Mita's words pop off the page and we wish she had more followers. So we're going to pass. And so mm-hmm. you know how some people have a rainy day folder of all the praise that you get, you all should have a rainy day folder, but I have a folder of rejections, which I think is important because now it means so much to me that the book is coming out. Cause I went back the other day, I went back to all those rejections, right? And they're there, they're sitting there, but it's just really powerful and meaningful that I'm getting this book published. Yeah, and you bring up a really good point. And, and I do wanna spend some time just about the process of the book yes. because I want to also highlight the the lack of representation mm-hmm. when it comes to thought leadership and uh and the fact that i think not only are you focusing on this conversation i think you also have that real world experience of working as a dei leader so mm-hmm. that is something that's i think also very unique uh and it provides a really powerful rich perspective especially, especially from a storytelling like connecting it back to, these are just concepts. These are things that are happening within the workplace. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you also have a podcast. So I would love to hear a little bit about that because I know a lot of the stories you share with your co-host are very much aligned with, with your book. So the podcast is called Brown Table Talk. My friend DC Marshall and I co-host it. It is part of LinkedIn's podcast network. And we are really on a mission to unpack it all, spill the tea, share all the stories of what women of color face in their workplaces. And we started it because for years we'd be trading audio messages, late night dinner calls, texts. (laughs) And we thought, why don't we actually turn this into a podcast and see what happens? So we self-funded it and then LinkedIn came knocking. But it's also, Angela, a place for allies to show up. We have allies who reach out to us to say, we've actually never heard these stories. Like no one has very, that very openly talked about things in the way you're talking about it. And like women of color, can't win at work without allies showing up and stepping up. And so that's the important piece we try to leave with every episode. And yes, if you love round table talk, you will love reimagine inclusion. <laughs> yes. And I, and I think, um, you know, the, the myths part of the book, sure. which I, I want to dig into because I just want to provide kind of my own perspective because like you, I worked as a CHRO uh, with an mm-hmm. organization. So like just listening to you and following you. And I, I just ordered the book, so I'm excited oh, to, to receive it. Uh, really has brought home for me that there are these just unsaid, un, un, right under the surface elements to exclusion at work, to lack of equity at work, mm-hmm. uh, to toxic culture at work. Yeah. And so let's maybe talk about one myth 
in the book that is especially close to your heart that you really want to drive home with your readers? Well, that's like asking me to pick my favorite style, but let's <laughs> do it. Well, yeah, one of the ones try. that I really have struggled with in my career is really around pay and equity. And one of the myths goes something like this. Why are you asking for a raise? Your husband makes more than enough money. Mm-hmm. And that is a true story of something that happened to me earlier in my career when I went and did all the things you're supposed to do. I researched how much my role was worth externally. I knew what points I had put on the board. I wanted to have this conversation during performance review. I went with a smile. I mustered up the courage. And I asked this former manager if he would review my pay. Because I knew that, as many of us know, when you bring in external talent, team dynamics change, and the pay inequities will inevitably come up because you are trying to attract talent and likely paying them more mm-hmm. versus thinking about who's there continuing to do the work. And that was his response to me. Why are you asking for a raise? Your husband makes more than enough money. And somehow he had found out what my husband did for a living. And I had actually tried to conceal it from him because I knew I would be punished for it. So one of the things, Angela, I talk about in the book is that this myth that women don't negotiate. Mm. Many women negotiate and they're dismissed, they're minimized, and they're gaslighted. And so it is important to have all the processes and structures in place, just as you did when you were a CHRO, just as you do now and helping and working with clients. But it really comes down to the individual and our biases and what what we think about when it comes to money. Like if I was asking you for a raise versus I'm going to make up Jeff, who's a white man, does that trigger, why does me asking you for a raise trigger you more versus him or does it, right? Mm. Does that matter? You know, one of the stories I share in the book, Angela, is that I was preparing to go to a leadership offsite and culturally... Um, as I said, of South Asian descent, I like my jewelry. It's the one thing I will spend money on. And I did not wear my engagement ring. And my husband said, well, why aren't you wearing your ring? And I was like, well, I'm up for a pay review. And I don't want to give, I don't want to give them any reason to not pay me more. And I've had girlfriends I've had these conversations with, right? Like, you don't need to be putting out, bringing your best logo bags and your best best designer shoes, right? Mm. I've been in conversations, Angela, where literally in talent reviews, well, she's carrying a Birkin bag around. I don't Mm. think she needs the 5% raise. Or her husband's in sales and he's killing it. He's going to get a great commission this year. So you can bump her 5% down to 3%. Or Mita, she is the sole breadwinner of her family. She's not going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. So you can make that bonus just a little bit less. And so these are all the ways in which our bias shows up. And do you think we would ever have a conversation if a man was carrying a Birkin bag that we would say, and now I'm picking on Jeff, but Jeff, who I just made up, oh, is Jeff. Carrying a, Jeff is carrying a Birkin bag. Oh, gosh. Well, we certainly don't have to pay him more. He makes more than enough money. Hmm. Yeah, there's, there's so, I mean, there's so much to unpack there. I mean, as far as bias and gender roles and racism and like so many, so many things I think we could just like veer off into, but I think it really comes down to 
like I mentioned, that kind of like just below the surface, yes. these things that these these conversations and discussions, calibration meetings that like I'm having a little. I, I'm, You're having hard palpitations. Yes, <laughs> I've been in, I've been in way too many. Right where Flash you know facts. we're talking or we're we're really saying some damaging things, and and it's really just a part of our conversation. Absolutely. She doesn't have executive presence or. Oh. They didn't go to the happy hour last week. So I don't think they're committed to this work. I don't think, I don't think they're, they're in it for the long haul. And it's like, please explain to me how not going to a happy hour or not speaking up at every single meeting and being the, the focal point in the room means that you're not capable and talented to, to do the work. So those calibration meetings caused me a little bit of stress. Yes. And Angela, for those listening, I hope one of the things you take away is that it's all of our jobs to interrupt that bias and it's never too late. You can do it in the moment or you can do it afterwards and how you do it is. And as you read Reimagine Inclusion, you will see. And if you know me, I'm not about naming, shaming and blaming. I really am about meeting people where they are, because if I name, shame and blame you, I've ruined the relationship. I've damaged it. I can't reach you anymore. Mm -hmm. And so rather than saying, well, Angela, that's quite a sexist comment. Mm-hmm. I can say, well, Angela, you just mentioned that you are concerned about Nita's commitment to her role. Can we explore that a little bit more? Are there other ways that you've seen her lack of commitment show up in this performance cycle? And then yes. all of a sudden, what you're trying to do, and you know you've done this in, in your role as a CHRO, you're trying to get people to self-reflect and you're coaching yes. them and yes. trying to understand and then I think what happens is if you do this in front of other people, it also becomes about role modeling Absolutely. and that other people will also start to think, oh, like the reality is we all have bias. If you are a human being, you have bias. Mm-hmm. The question is, how do you actually think about uh, the first thought you have in your head and you might hold that thought and think about, okay, well, I'm going to take a different action as a result of it because I can catch myself in my head. Because that's the mm. beauty of it. No one can actually hear what's happening in our heads. Yes, I know. No Surprising, right? No one can hear what's happening in our head. So you can, yeah, we're human. You might have that thought about somebody. And then you check yourself. Right? You check yeah, yourself. Absolutely. And I think one of the things I think a lot about is bias, but also the fact that you know, bias usually appears um, when we kind of go to default mode, right? When we're maybe under threat, there's stress, there's chaos. Yes. And there's a there's a lot of threat right now. Mm. There's a lot of, um, yes. you know, as we talk about DE&I, I was just watching the news before our conversation and defunding DE&I. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of um, eyeballs and feelings of threat around this work. So how are you dealing with that and addressing that because you do have a very beautiful artful way of coaching and not shaming and blaming but then how do you also meet that with just this high tension of this work right yeah now? and that's a great question i'm still on that journey trying to figure that out i think that one of the things anytime that we're afraid of something it's easier just to other it or demonize mm-hmm. it you know, you think about wokeness and anti-wokeness, right? You think about social media and the things that sometimes get a lot of clicks. It's like things that are really like visceral gut reactions mm. or hate, you know, let's just call it what it is. And so how do you actually get to know experiences that aren't your own? 
And that's, that's really the key. And one of the things I discuss in Reimagine Inclusion is that we have this backwards. We're chasing inclusion in our workplaces. Inclusion doesn't start at our conference room tables. It starts at our kitchen room tables. Mm. The reality is in the US today, two thirds of white Americans are still segregating and it's similar numbers for black Americans. And so I do this exercise with leaders where I say, I go through a series of questions and I say, who are the five people who are not in your family that you consider friends that you call during a moment of distress, celebration, something you need advice on? And here's the deal. If they'll all look like you, act like you, and think like you, let's be honest in saying we're self-segregating. So how can we say that we care about Black Lives Matter if we don't have any meaningful relationships with Black people in our lives? How can we understand anti-Asian hate sentiment? How can we understand what's happening with anti-LGBTQ legislation and that community's rights being threatened every single day? Anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, I can go on and on. There's so many communities being hurt and harmed. But if I have a relationship with someone from that community that's meaningful, and hopefully more than one, you start to, then there, the hate is gone. The fear mongering is gone. The othering is gone that no longer that this is seen as a threat because they don't understand it. I mean, I can't wrap my head around defunding DE&I. Like I just, I, I, I was like, huh? Like, it's just like, what? Like I can't under, my brain can't process it because it does not make sense to me. And then, and then I'll turn it back over to you to get your reaction, mm-hmm. but then yeah. no longer, you know, a lot of these conversations I have with leaders over the years, is it politics? Is this too political that we're addressing this? And then it's, it's no, it's human rights. Yes. It is human rights. I don't know a single black friend or a colleague who I know would say that black lives matter is not a human rights issue. Xenophobia is not a human rights issue. Anti-LGBTQ legislation is not a human rights. Like any time anybody is being hurt and harmed and their life is at risk, it is a human rights issue, right? It is not political, but it is through the lens in which you see it. Because if that hasn't been your life experience, then it can become really easy for us to say, oh, well, that's political. They're being too woke. We need to defund that. Because isn't that easier to do that than actually take the time to learn about experience. Yes, 100%. And yeah, I I totally agree with you. It's a human rights issue. And you know, when we go back to workplaces, right, because I think that's um, a lens, it's it's one of the systems in which this work is um, being worked on, right? I mean, there's many other other systems and areas where we we need to connect the dots. But Mm -hmm. from a workplace perspective, you know, I oftentimes not that I, I stay away from the DEI language, but it is culture work. Mm-hmm. Like this, this is about how our businesses run, our value system. If we just anchor it back into our value system, even as a country, yes, even as a country, what what is the experience that we want people to have here? Mm-hmm. And and of course, we know there's a lot of uh, historical context to that as to why right. we are where we are. Of course. But I agree with you. I think we we peg this as a political issue and really we're just talking about creating opportunity, keeping people alive. Mm-hmm. And, and that is the other kind of sad part of this work is that we're yeah. just trying to get to survival. Mm-hmm. 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 And that is that breaks my heart. 
<laughs> that breaks my heart that we have to talk about defunding DEI when yeah. we still have um, attacks on black bodies and we still have issues with human rights and mm-hmm. LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. sorry. That was my reaction. But, um, you know, I do think that uh, your book, because we're talking about reimagining inclusion, I just think some of our language around this work, maybe we have a branding issue, <laughs> you know? It's like, can we just talk about what we're actually talking about here? Let's stop yeah. throwing out D-E-N-I and the letters. Let's talk about what we're actually talking about. Well, it's interesting. There was an article in the New York Times that I haven't read yet, but I had a number of people send it to me. What are their words? Diversity, inclusion, is it now diversity and belonging? Is it is it justice? Is it, inclu- what, what is it? And at the end of the day, I say, we all want to be, valued, seen, and recognized for our contributions at work. And when we do that, we feel like we're included. We feel like we belong. We feel like we've made the right choice. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing like inclusion to be a driver of retention. I don't care how many free snacks you give me, fancy snacks, meditation apps, ping pong table, black hoodie, another Yeti tumbler, whatever you want to add to the list. But like, there is nothing like when, if I work for Angela, and she sees me and she values me. I feel included, I feel belonged. I don't care if you offered me fifteen, twenty thousand dollars to go move to another company because that risk for me is not worth it, right? Because that other company is unknown versus I know that I'm valued here. I know that I'm being invested in. I know that I'm being taken care of. Yeah, so let's talk about that for a moment because you are speaking my, that's music to my ears because I do think, you know, I'm working with a lot of organizations. Our Call for Culture works with organizations to help them with their culture and create a more positive, healthy culture. And I cannot tell you how many times I work with an organization and they give me this big, beautiful laundry list of the things they're doing for their people. Mm-hmm. Well, we have the food trucks on sun- on Fridays and we have the free tea in the break room and Ooh. we've given everybody a $50 referral fee for it. And I'm just like, okay, well, tell me a little bit about, about your leadership. Do people feel safe? Yes. yes. Do they feel like their work is valued? Are their roles clear? Are they doing mental cartwheels when they go into work every day? Are they putting in emotional labor mm-hmm. uh, when they're working with their team? And it's just like crickets, you know, and it's like, but we're doing all these things. Isn't that great? Look at all these. But we have the $50 gym reimbursement. Yes. All of that, all those things are are great. They're great perks, but really all you're getting is the big old eye roll where it's like, okay, you're giving me $50 to work at a gym, but you're also forcing me to answer emails on a Sunday when I'm supposed Mm -hmm. to be with my family, Mm -hmm. but you Mm want to build a culture of well-being. And so people are, I think, are just so, and we see it, right? I mean, we have all these buzzwords around like quite quitting and yeah. all of these, you know, I, I would call them more kind of like buzzy, you know, newsworthy, not newsworthy, but um, highlights that uh, end up on, on a, a news headline somewhere. But really, I think what people are saying is, I'm tired of being exploited. Mm-hmm. I'm tired of being in an environment where I'm not valued, seen, and heard, to your point. I don't feel like I belong. Or I'm in a toxic environment where my leader is, we have all these beautiful core values on the wall, but my leader is creating unsafe environments mm-hmm. for, for the team. So it's just, it's kind of maddening <laughs> to okay. see that mismatch, that cognitive dissonance between our words and our actions. So for our listeners today, do me a favor check your calendar for tomorrow. I want you to look at what meetings you have and who's invited 
to the meetings and who's excluded and why haven't they been included? And this, Angela, has plagued me my entire career. If I have done the work, why can't I present it? Why can't I present my own work? And so many of us would agree meetings, how we run them are fundamentally broken. I'm not advocating. Um, my expertise is not how you should run your meeting, but I will tell you meetings can be a driver. Invites to meetings can be a driver of inclusion. Mm -hmm. And so I also don't buy this notion that, oh, the more people in the meeting productivity declines, not if you give people roles, as I talk about mm -hmm. and reimagine mm -hmm. inclusion, right? And also like if you're having an executive meeting and I'm on Angela's team, Angela can just have me come and present the proposal for a few mm -hmm. minutes. I don't need to stay for however long. But I just, you know, it's very interesting to me, the hierarchy and politics that still exist in some organizations where people aren't presenting the work they're doing. And that goes back to feeling valued, seen and recognized. Right. And that's so, so important. So important. And it goes back to your original, the original story you shared about the, the increase is, is this idea of autonomy and that you are an autonomous person. Right. And there's also this like general lack of trust and feeling that we need to have oversight on all the individuals, especially I think women and women of color within mm -hmm. the workplace. We just, we just can't trust them to get the job done. It's the micromanagement, right? And why? Yes. Because there's nothing that's going to kill my spirit faster and have me walk out the door faster than micromanaging every single move I make and why. Mm. What is the need for control there, right? Why? And what does that say about you as a leader? When honestly, you should be focused on more strategic things. Let me, let me figure out when the samples are coming and when I'm gonna show them to the vice president. And I, it, it boggles my mind, mm. the things that we do every day and the things that we could do differently every day to just create a more inclusive environment. Imagine if each of us walked into work tomorrow and just thought of one thing we were going to do differently. Like that's the ripple effect because this isn't one person's job. That's a really yes. heavy burden to bear. But like every single person shows up thinking, okay, I'm going to show up differently today. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? Yeah. And what are some of the paradigms that have plagued the workplace? Things like, uh, you know, feelings of control. Yes. That there's some un, uh, some version of loyalty that people are owed to you in the workplace. Like these are things that yes. are grounded in really problematic concepts that are just just built in. They're baked into the system. So I think your point about control is is a really important one, and it's complex. It is complex, and I think there's a song that right now is my daughter's favorite. It's the Taylor Swift song called Antihero. Oh. And there's a yeah. line in it that says, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me. And I talk about, if you look at my early career, I was job hopping every mm -hmm. year and a half or so. And part of it was because I just didn't feel like I could find a place that fit me. Mm -hmm. And I thought I was the problem, right? It's me. I'm the problem. And I'm like, wow, no, it's these systems and structures that weren't built for people who look like me. They weren't designed for people who look like me. Even when I go back to pay inequities, my father, rest in peace, who really raised us and taught us, I remember one of his famous sayings, like, keep your head down, work hard, stay out of trouble, and you'll be recognized. And that's not how it works in corporate America. And I was raised to trust the system. 
And there was this piece of growing up as the daughter of immigrant parents that my parents sacrificed everything to come to this country. And so I should be grateful and thankful for what I have. And something I shared on LinkedIn recently was yet another, another incident of gaslighting when it comes to pay. It was early in my career and I was offered a brand manager role. I was very excited for it, had interviewed for it and desperately wanted the job. And when I tried to negotiate, the recruiter said, this is more than a fair offer. I can't believe you're negotiating. And so given the power dynamics there and just being more junior in my career, I was like, oh, okay. And I took the job. And then I find out a few months into the role, the white man who I become friends with, who has less marketing experience than me is making 10% more. And so this is how these things show up. But I also think, Angela, I talk about this pretty openly, like I'm also at odds with the system that was set up that wasn't built for me, but culturally how I show up and the things that I've had to undo as well from a cultural perspective or things that I'm still unlearning. Yes. Yes. Unlearning is, uh, I can relate to that because I had to do it in corporate and now as an entrepreneur, yes. it's a whole nother conversation about exclusivity yes. and mm -hmm. whole nother world. Um, so I appreciate you saying that because that resonates with me. So last question, because sure. this is something that's been on my mind and I figure I might as well have another brain on this because okay. you did, it. yes, because you did mention earlier, um, we talked about inclusion and kind of this idea of consensus. So I've started to say that inclusion is not necessarily consensus, that everybody needs to be in the room, but we need to be thoughtful to ensure that the right voices are amplified. So I would love to get your perspective on that and test it, tear it apart, let me know if I'm kind of on the right track with that thought. Can you repeat your thought again? Inclusion, this is really heavy. I might need another cup of coffee. Actually. I know, some more caffeine, yeah. Inclusion is not necessarily consensus. I would agree with that. I think one of the biggest and most difficult things leaders have to do is listen to perspectives they don't agree with. It's the hardest job of a leader. I was having a conversation with someone yesterday we can still disagree as long as we respect each other. Because when you're, you know, what's the difference between debating and conflict? Like hopefully debating doesn't arise to conflict. Like mm -hmm. if you are trying to do better, be better as an organization, you're trying to exceed your quarterly goals, you're trying to beat your competition, you're trying to launch the most fantastic latest new innovation, you're only going to get to a better place when those views and opinions collide and collide and clash. Mm -hmm. Collide and clash and gets you yes. to a better end result. But it doesn't always mean that we're always going to agree with each other. And I think, mm -hmm. I believe we've lost our ability as a country to disagree with each other. And whether that's in our workplaces, whether that's in our families and our kitchen room tables, especially with another presidential election coming up mm -hmm. next year. Like we've lost the ability to disagree. We've lost the ability to listen to a perspective that we might not agree with. That's not our own. I mean, I say this in social media every day. Like, you know, I scroll by stuff and I'm like, oh, not my cup of tea. That's cool. But I don't need to put some hateful comment on Angela's post. Like we disagree. That's cool. I'm going to scroll on by or like people show up in my audio rooms. They show up on my feed and I say, thanks for your perspective. I learned something new. I don't, I don't necessarily agree with it, but that's okay. That's cool. You presented it in a very kind way. And so I appreciate, I learned something new that my perspective hmm, might evolve because of this. Yeah. 
Well, Mita, I am so grateful for you and your oh, perspective. Thank you so and thank you for uh, bouncing a little bit of ideas around that concept that I was talking about, because I do think it is a holdup for business leaders where they're like, oh, well, I have to include everybody. And that means it's going to, we're going to have a slow process and I can't get to a decision. And it's not the case. I don't know if that's a myth in your book, but if we read an, if you write another book, we're going to add that it's one. Be because... No, yes. but you know what? it's like, that is, you know, leading is a privilege and it's an yes. honor to lead. And so that comes with part of being a leader. It's yes. not easy. It's not easy. And it's a privilege and an honor to lead. Yes. And it's been a privilege and an honor, Mita, to be with you today. Oh, thank, thank you, you so you. much for your time. Uh, and where can people find you or uh, purchase your book? Yes. So find me on LinkedIn and please go check out the book. It's available for pre-order on Amazon. Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace. I know you're going to love it. Amazing. We're going to put all that in the show notes. People can just click Thank and you. go and purchase. Thank you so much, Mita. Thank you, Angela.